So I've covered Donald Trump since 2015. You know, I started covering him during his campaign and followed him through to the White House and have covered him for the last four years. And I fully intended on transitioning over to cover Joe Biden's presidency, which I'm going to be doing at some point. <laughs> but this period of transition was so insane and so consequential that it just sucked me back in. You'll never take back our country with weakness. You have and breaking news tonight, the deadly siege on Congress as an angry pro-Trump mob storms. The I'm Jonathan Swan. For this series, I talked to a range of senior West Wing officials, senior administration officials, senior campaign officials, and close personal advisors to the president. I talked to them on the basis of deep background, meaning I could use the information, but not say where it came from. The scenes that you'll hear about in this series are fly on the wall. They're described with dates, names, who's in the room, who sat where. I'll take you inside the president's living quarters, inside Air Force One, inside the Oval Office for some of the most consequential meetings of this period, many of which have never been reported before. This series is my best attempt to reconstruct Trump's final days while sources' memories are still fresh and people are willing to talk. From Axios, this is how it happened, Trump's last stand. Part one, where it starts. The reason I think that this period from November 3rd to January 20 is so important, it's the culmination of so many trends that have been happening in plain sight. You can draw a direct line between Donald Trump's victory speech on election night at 2.20 a.m. and the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. Let's start in that first week of October. This was a dark low point for Donald Trump and his campaign. He'd just come out of a horrendous first debate against Joe Biden. Because you were very late on the draw. You didn't want me to in which he berated Biden, interrupted. You didn't want me to ban. All right, we're, gentlemen, we're, we're, which no, was heavily Mr. President. You would have been much later, Joe. Mr. President. In the immediate wake of that, the campaign's internal numbers started plummeting. Polls show a widening gap between him and Joe Biden. Let's bring in Trump 2020 campaign. Then Trump got COVID. The president of the United States has tested positive for COVID. He was actually quite sick. He was feeling terrible. He was taken to Walter Reed Hospital and put on a cocktail of drugs, including some experimental drugs. Back at the White House this morning and promising to get back on the campaign trail. Donald Trump became increasingly erratic after he got COVID. Election night had started to take shape in Donald Trump's mind at that point. He was becoming more and more preoccupied with how to spin his way out of this situation, how to set up and strengthen this narrative of fraud. And you get thousands and thousands of people sitting in somebody's living room signing ballots all over the place. He was trying to no, find these life rafts. Mail-in voting is a terrible thing. I think if you vote... Then that second week of October, he calls his former chief of staff, Reince Priebus. 
Priebus told friends he was stunned. And here the president act out this vision that he'd had of election night. Trump said to Priebus in that phone call that if it looked like he was ahead on election night, that he would just go up to the podium and declare victory. That's a really important conversation. So Republicans were telling pollsters, we're going to vote in person. Trump had been hammering this again and again and again. You need to vote in person on election day. That's why voting experts are warning people to be aware of a red or blue mirage in early results. The red mirage is the early vote count appears to favor Donald Trump heavily. Before all the mail-in votes, many of them blue, are counted. In states like Pennsylvania and Michigan. But in fact that lead is inevitably going to be whistled away over the coming days as the heavily Democratic mail-in vote is counted. A scenario it seems the president is more than ready to exploit. So Trump knew about that. He'd seen this reported. He understood that this was going to happen. President Trump wanted Americans to go to sleep on election night, watching on their television a map bathed in red, with either the joy or the resignation that he was going to be their president. And the capstone of that night was going to be his victory speech. Donors, cabinet secretaries, the White House physician, Sean Connolly, TV sycophants, Diamond and Silk, and other VIPs gathered for the official election night party. They munched on beef sliders. Most did not wear masks. One person who was there told me you could just tell that this was going to be a super spreader event. Rudy Giuliani was stationed at this table, sprawled out, his laptop open, acting like he was command central. And then you had Trump's tight inner circle, his real inner circle, his children, Don Jr., Eric, Ivanka, his longtime advisor, Hope Hicks, White House Deputy Chief of Staff Dan Scavino and a few others, they gathered separately to watch the returns on TV. The family would wander in. They gathered in the map room on the ground floor of the White House residence. This is the same room where Franklin Delano Roosevelt had once tracked fighting during World War II. This was the scene on election night. The one missing character from this is Donald Trump. He wanted to watch the results alone. He stayed on his own up on the third floor of his residence, consuming the results on television, making phone calls. He has this expectation that Fox will be in his corner. How it happened is back in a moment. We're back. So Rupert Murdoch, after 2016, had spent a fortune investing in what they internally regarded at Fox as a best-in-class voter analysis system. And you can hear on Fox News's newsier shows just how proud they are of this decision desk. It's a team of 10 or so apolitical data wonks who gather on election night in a tennis court-sized conference room 
They're friends, they're cursing at each other, they're at socially distant stations, and these are the guys who actually make the calls on election night. And the man in charge is Arnon Mishkin. This is not a man that you normally see on primetime television. He's got rimless glasses and this wry sense of humour. Fox even profiled him as if he's someone to boast about, but they also treated him as if he's a different species, like the antithesis of someone like Sean Hannity. The decision team is known by some of us at Fox as the nerd querium. <laughs> How do you play, Arnon? Are you a nerd? I, I plead guilty to being a nerd. This is the only way a news organization can actually make news as the election returns come in. And in 2020, Rupert Murdoch had gotten what he paid for. You can hear in this profile that they want viewers to trust these election night calls, even if they know the Fox News audience won't like the results. What role will politics play in making any calls on election night? Zero. And it is 7 o'clock on the East Coast, which means polls have just closed in half a dozen states. This was the scene on election night at the White House residence in the early evening. About 200 guests gathered. There was a sense of nervous excitement and anticipation. The team had been cautiously optimistic that they were watching a repeat of Trump's poll-defying 2016 victory. The early results were good. Florida, Ohio, there was a sense of enthusiasm. That all changed at 11.20 p.m. What is this happening here? Why? As Bill Hemmer, the anchor, narrated a live what-if scenario on his election telestrator, there was this palpable sense of confusion. He was saying, what's happening here? Why is Arizona blue? He was prodding at the states. He was trying to do a scenario which, you know, one of these hypothetical scenarios where you flip a state from blue to red, but he couldn't do it on the telestrator. Did we just call it? Did we make a call in Arizona? Now, there's a check mark. And that's because our decision desk the decision it? desk Arizona, had called Arizona, Arizona yeah. for Biden, unbeknownst okay, to I Bill Hemmer. Uh, when we come back, we'll fill this in. If you lose Arizona, where do you win now? Trump summons his inner sanctum up to his private quarters. This is the third floor of the residence where his bedroom is. Staff rarely go up there. Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, his campaign manager, Bill Stepien, senior strategist, Jason Miller, and data cruncher, Matt Ozkowski, they take the elevator up to the residence, the third floor of the residence at the White House. They meet with Trump and the First Lady halfway between the President's bedroom and his living room at the end of the hall. And Trump starts peppering them with questions. What the hell is going on at Fox? What happened? Time out. This is a big development. Yeah. The Fox News decision desk is calling Arizona for Joe Biden. That so Ozkowski, the data guy, get. he tells Trump Biden that based on the campaign's modeling, he thinks Fox is wrong and that the Trump campaign was going to narrowly win Arizona by maybe 10,000 votes or fewer. So then Trump turns to what this meeting's really all about. He says, Jared, you call the Murdochs. Jason, this is addressing Jason Miller, you call Salmon and Hemmer. Bill Salmon is 
the managing director of Fox News' Washington bureau, Bill Hemmer, the anchor on air. And he said, quote, and anyone else, anyone else who'll take the call. So he was ordering his team to pressure Fox News' top executives right up to the top, Rupert Murdoch, who Jared Kushner actually called, to the key anchors on set who were immediately bombarded by text messages, angry text messages from Trump officials. So while they're on set narrating the results, Brett Baer and Martha McCallum's phones are lighting up. And uh, my phone is lighting up with Republicans saying, you can't do it. But upstairs at the Fox News decision desk, nobody was confused. So the producers haul down onto the set the decision desk director, Arnon Mishkin. Arizona, are you... 100% sure of that call and when you made it and why did you make it? Absolutely. We made it after basically a half hour of debating. Is it time yet? Because it was, it's, it's been clear. And McCallum, looking up from her phone, where she'd been texting with a furious Trump aide, she says to Michigan, they've said, they being the Trump campaign, that they believe they're going to get the outstanding votes, which they claim are at a million to 1.1 million. You're saying the universe of votes that's out there is much lower than that, she says to Michigan. And Michigan was very blunt. He says on air, we think the universe of votes outstanding is lower than that. And we believe that. And he actually says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The president is not going to be able to take over and win enough votes to eliminate that seven point lead that the former vice president has. As if he's talking to the millions of disappointed Fox viewers out there. Disappointed might be far too mild. I mean, many, many viewers probably will never watch Fox again and moved over to Newsmax over this decision. But he says, I'm sorry. He's not getting anywhere near that outstanding vote. And that's why we made this call. Shortly after 1am, Trump was becoming increasingly sour and restless. He wanted to know why he couldn't just declare that he'd won and be done with it. A larger group of family members, White House staff, and top campaign officials went up to a hallway in the residence to brief Trump, and for many of them, it was the first time they'd seen him all night. Fox had spoiled his victory narrative, and he was mad about it. So he decided to make a statement. The president began spontaneously, in a stream-of-consciousness fashion, dictating remarks as his aides huddled around in the corridor. His speechwriter, Stephen Miller, was seated on a couch in the hallway, typing furiously on his laptop as the president dictated. Some aides thought it was a terrible idea to declare victory when it was so far from that but none spoke up. It was all Trump, right up until the moment he stepped on stage. Shortly after 2 a.m. or thereabouts, the president's speechwriters sent a draft of his address to the president's longtime teleprompter operator. In the minutes before Trump gave his victory address, he hovered over his teleprompter operator, barking some last-minute changes to his speech, which the teleprompter operator was hastily updating in real time. At 2.20 a.m., President Trump strode out onto the podium to give his victory address. 
Hail to the chief played, his supporters crowded in front of him, none of them wearing masks, holding up their cell phone cameras to record this historic moment. Trump gave a bitter, sour, lie-riddled speech. And this hasn't been reported before. The draft that President Trump's speechwriters sent to his teleprompter operator did not include the words that became the speech's most infamous line. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. He said right there and then that he had won the election, that this was the result, and that Democrats were busy perpetrating a giant fraud on the American people. I'd broken a story a few days earlier that this is what President Trump was going to do, and it was based on first-hand reporting that he told aides that he was going to declare victory if it looked like he was ahead. What I hadn't anticipated was, if it didn't look like he was ahead, that he would still barrel through with the plan. There was this sense of shock just seeing him say it out loud. It was such an aberrant moment. We've never seen someone so shamelessly do this before on the presidential stage. The thing about that speech was it was unequivocal. There was no room to deviate off that path. The reason that speech was so significant was because the president planted a flag for his base. And the flag said in big, bold letters, I won this election and they are trying to steal it. And he never deviated off that path. That set the train of events forward. Next time. The Trump campaign's legal battle to hold on to the presidency. This is How It Happened from Axios. Take a moment and subscribe to How It Happened. And leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can read more on these stories in my series, Off the Rails, at axios.com. This episode was produced by Amy Padula, Naomi Shaven, and Alice Wilder. Dan Bobkoff is the executive producer. Additional reporting and fact-checking by Zach Basu. Margaret Talev is managing editor of politics. Sarah Kehulani-Gu is Axios' executive editor. Mixing by Alex Sugiyora. And original music by Mike Hampf. Special thanks to Carol Wu, Dan Primack, Chen Gao, Nyla Boodoo, Tim Shovers, and Axios co-founders Roy Schwartz, Jim Vanderhei, and Mike Allen. I'm Jonathan Swan. We'll be back next week.